We are all motivated by meaning, which is why the reInvent podcast aims to bring you a wide range of relevant information, focusing on all aspects of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. The objective of this show is to pick the minds of some of the most interesting people, all with their own stories of personal transformation, so that you can make the changes towards a more meaningful, healthier, and happier life. My name is Nikki Robertson. I'm a clinical nutritionist, NLP practitioner, and founder of reInvent Health. Dr. Ian Weinberg is a practicing neurosurgeon, author, and pioneer in the application of psychoneuroimmunology, the scientific study of how our thoughts create a chemical structure which enables disease or enhances immunity. In this episode, we discuss how our very thoughts inform the immune system and how reframing the way we react to the world around us, we can completely alter our health and quality of life. Look, all that this has done is it's gone and emphasized everything. It's, it's almost as though it's put everything into a pressure cooker and it's amplified it a hundred times. Look, generally in our environments, there's uh, a degree of fear. Fear manifests in many different ways. Um, and fear relates all the way back. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's initiated in those early nurture years where there was a fear of not getting needs met. And some people had their needs met more comprehensively and, and more rapidly than others. And so to a greater or lesser extent, there's a degree of fear, fear of not getting needs met. And with that is this whole need to control a familiar environment. So it's about control. It's about recognizing all the familiar elements. And that's where we all live. We live in this environment, which we um, know, we're familiar with, we're comfortable with it. It's our comfort zone. But there's always that underlying fear when something is slightly amiss, that we're not fully in control. And if we're not fully in control, things may happen that will deprive us of our needs. And so immediately there is that reflex trigger of the fear center, which is the amygdala. The amygdala is the, the center of fear, but it's also the center of fear, anxiety, panic, and rage. They're all there. It's a spectrum in the amygdala. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing many triggers for the fear, and the triggers are obviously a threat to life. So that's a fight-flight reaction. That's going to trigger the amygdala. That's very real. It's a landscape that is radically changing, and it's a landscape which we can't control. And coming under the same heading as can't control, we don't know what its endpoint is. So if we don't know what its endpoint is, that's another source of, uh, of fear, of great fear, of anxiety. And so all these things together have converged to trigger this amygdala, which is fear, anxiety, panic, and rage. And we're seeing that full spectrum, depending on the person. I mean, we're seeing everything from, from uh, paralyzing fear to um, raging fury. And, uh, and that's really what's happened at the moment. It's all come to fruition, and it's, it's basically um, amplified it to enormous proportions. But on the neurochemical and neuroscientific side, there's another big problem associated with these hyperstimulated amygdala, these seats of fear, anxiety, panic, and rage. And that is one of the chemicals that it secretes is adrenaline. Uh, the other one is cortisol. 
And so the amygdala secretes cortisol and adrenaline to manifest all these symptoms of fear. But it's one of those quirks of nature in that those two elements in themselves also trigger the amygdala. So we actually chemically get caught up in a vicious cycle. We get locked into the amygdala. So fear begets more fear. Anger begets more anger and fear. And so we get caught up chemically in a spiral and we'll only get out of it if there is a real break state, if something actually saves us from this process. It's a mind state that will break us out of it, which I'll, I'll talk to you a little later about. But there's a major problem here, and that is um, raised levels of adrenaline are known to suppress our highest function, which is where our reasoning is, the prefrontal cortex. And so by suppressing our prefrontal cortex, we lose a very important resource. It's the thing that modulates the fear. And so we get left exposed to this enormous fear. Basically, there are four very important centers in the brain. The one is the amygdala that we've spoken about, and that's what you can call a negative or destructive space. It has its place. I mean, you can climb a 10-foot wall with all that adrenaline if you're chased by a lion, but that doesn't apply now, so it's inappropriate. But there's, other, there's three other centers which would suppress the amygdala. And, that, and these three areas are the one I've already mentioned, the prefrontal cortex, which is the area of, of uh, reasoning, of modulation, of the outpouring of unmitigating fear, from unmitigated fear from the um, amygdala. And then there's an area that produces dopamine. The nucleus accumbens produces dopamine. And dopamine is associated with gratification, feel-good engagement, curiosity, achievement, gratification. All the good stuff comes from the nucleus accumbens. And that suppresses the amygdala. So the prefrontal cortex modulates the fear coming from the amygdala. And the nucleus accumbens with its dopamine suppresses the amygdala. So you can suppress the amygdala with purposefulness, meaningfulness, gratification, reward, etc. They all suppress the fear. And then finally, we have a center which we believe is in the singular gyrus, which is the secretion of oxytocin. And oxytocin is associated with empathy, trust, belief, um, also the gratification that's derived from belonging to a group, and all nurture aspects are associated with oxytocin. And so Oxytocin also suppresses the amygdala. Oxytocin manifests that mind state of empathy, trust, and belief. And it also stimulates the production of dopamine and gets that whole dopamine story going. So we've been blessed with a three to one ratio in our favor of getting us into a better space. The problem at the moment is that with the amygdalas triggered to such high levels, we have to make uh, a real concerted effort at uh, kickstarting those other three centers. They're critical now uh, in, um, uh, in, in modulating this amygdala. And, and then just to make it a lot worse, just to aggravate everything, there's also another mind state, which is the mind state devoid of the dopamine, devoid of the oxytocin. And that's a mind state that devolves into what's called hopeless, helpless. And if you devolve into hopeless, helpless, you basically 
trigger another whole story, a whole set of chemicals. The important ones that you trigger there, well, the, the important consequence of hopeless, helpless is the rising level of cortisol, which in this age of COVID is lethal because it will suppress your immunity. The other thing that the raised adrenaline does is it kickstarts or it enhances inflammation. So now we land up in the negative, in the destructive mind state. If we're in severe fear, a very high heightened fear situation, and we've tended into hopeless helpless because we've thrown in the towel because it's overpowered us and we don't see a way out. The manifestations of those two would be raised adrenaline, raise adrenaline and enhanced uh, inflammation and a suppression of immunity. In the face of this virus, that is lethal. So it will impair your immunity and the chronic inflammation, well, the, not chronic, here yeah, it's acute inflammation is mediated by the inflammatory mediators, the cytokines. And we now know that there's a significant percentage of fatalities or those who have done really badly with the virus. They've had what's called a cytokine storm. And it is my contention that in those particular individuals, there may well have been a very strong fear factor which caused raised levels of adrenaline and which, which predisposed, I wouldn't say cause, and which may well have predisposed to a cytokine storm, which in many cases can be lethal. So that, that really is a summary of the mind states and the chemistry that go with it, which at this point in time, in this current COVID environment, is, is incredibly important. It's, it's highly relevant to, to where we are at the moment. And therefore, as I've said to our coaches, as you know, we, I've trained coaches and we've got accredited coaches that use my program. And we had this discussion very recently. And I said to them, you know, guys, your coaching, uh, by the way, the, the coaching that I use is called neuromodulation coaching, which is in fact uh, coaching, neuro coaching addressed at the chemistry. It's directly, it is to engage directly with this chemistry that I've described, hence this word. And I've said to them, you need to know that you are now asked not just to coach in terms of the standard coaching concept. You are now asked because you've been trained by me and you understand the chemistry. You actually now have to up the game because you now have to coach people in terms of the chemistry and you may well make a hell of a big difference in terms of the outcome in those who become infected with moving it towards a more advantageous and more beneficial outcome. So this is a major new uh, uh, um, access point for those coaches who are familiar with this particular chemistry and who've done my program, obviously, and who are aware with how you engage the individual to address those four areas of the brain that I spoke to you about. This is a fascinating time in history. In, in, in previous episodes, we've been talking about referring to the situation as, a, as a, a social experiment. And I think for those of us who work on the clinical side, as well as the, the psychological side, where we understand that thoughts create chemistry, you couldn't ask for a better mass case study because in the months to come, it's going to be very interesting to find out whether these people who have been 
whose immune systems have backfired on them, what they were dealing with emotionally and from a stress point of view in the last six months, or even in the last, as we know, it can take five years to manifest. You know, five years ago, if you want to look at somebody, and I learned this from you years ago, was that if we're dealing with someone who has cancer, for example, and we look back five to 10 years in the timeline, you can almost pinpoint the events that led to what eventually became the disease. So it's, I think the timeline in this case is, is, is compacted. Uh, we're going to have a lot more information to work with. And thankfully, in many respects, this experience has made us think differently because you know, we're not going to get anywhere unless we can think differently. And you know, medicine, we're always going on about reviews and studies and is it proven? But never before in human history, have we had such a big platform to test a theory. What we're actually saying is that the confusion, the helplessness of the medical profession in the face of this undefined organism. I mean, this organism is resulting in everything from no symptoms to death and everything in between. The medical profession are confused. The medical profession are at sea in trying to identify what this thing is doing, how it's doing it. And they seem to have forgotten that there's a person that's been in, that has been infected. And the person is a consciousness. The person is their entire biopsychosocial narrative. They're an entire history. And one hopes, and really, as you know, I've been at, this, I've been at the psychoneuroimmunology game, which is this chemistry I spoke to you about, for more than 30 years and have not been able to make a dent in the profession of which I'm a member of. So I basically wear two hats. Well, I wear one hat, but I have to wear two because I've got the medical profession on the one hand and I've got the psychoneuroimmunology and coaches on the other hand. And I have not been able to make a dent. And I, would, and I was hoping and I would hope that perhaps if enough of this information, which by the way is validated, as validated as hard medical fact is validated, one is hoping that this validated information, the influences of consciousness, which is a cognitive and emotional function, which have very clear identifiable places in the brain. One is hoping that in this extreme situation, this scenario that you've described, there will be more receptivity, or there will be receptivity to the possibility that, wait a bit, our biomedical model is inadequate. It has just left us confused. I mean, we've got a profession globally that are clutching at straws to try and make sense of this thing. And I'm saying, but hang on a bit. Maybe the guys that died were in the context of psychoneuroimmunology going to die. The question is, did these people die from the coronavirus or with the coronavirus? We, we haven't really even been clear on that. And so I would say that a lot of the modes of illness, modes of death, reflect as much and maybe even more so the individual in their entirety, their biopsychosocial narrative from their birth and uh, with, with current environments impacting upon this narrative and giving rise to a subjective physiology that decides which way this organism is going to take them. And so I think you're right. You're 100% right. And I would hope, I would like to believe that perhaps the confusion and the helplessness of the medical of the conventional biomedical medical profession will make them more receptive 
to this other variable, which I believe is as real as the heart pumps blood. So anybody who's in the, the healthcare industry for the right reasons, and by that I mean who, who has a, a need to help people or a need to be of service um, to, for the greater good, would in private would know this. They might not admit it out there in public. It may not be, if they may not make it official. I really believe, maybe I'm just an optimist, that there are so many physicians and practitioners and therapists out there who know this to be true, but have never dared go down that road because for fear of being told that they're out of their scope of practice, there's all sorts of reasons why people don't, don't jump the fence. Um, I'm hoping, like you said, that it plants a seed of hopeless, being hopeless and feeling like we don't know the answers should instill learning and should spur us on to ask better questions. So perhaps there's a lot of good in the medical field that's going to come from this because there's nothing like not knowing that creates creative juices. Um, in your position working at the moment, what are you seeing? What is your feeling? What are you seeing as, as far as patients are concerned? In terms of in my particular clinic, um, now don't forget, I'm not a physician and they're the, they're the front lines. I'm a, I'm a neurosurgeon. So I'm dealing with my patients and I'm obviously very limited at the moment to what I'm doing, but all the other elective stuff has been put on hold. But herein comes a big problem. They've been put on hold and there are some really ill people with illnesses related to other problems, such as oncology for cancers, cardiac problems. There are people waiting for important procedures to be done, and they've all been sidelined in the face of this epidemic and all the fear and all the connotations of this uh, killer virus. But in reality, we're seeing very few ill cases. It seems to us to be possibly very overdone. Have we been conned by the human interpretation of this virus? Have we been totally conned, not necessarily nefariously, but have we been conned by the collective fear, by the hopeless helplessness globally, mediated by the press and by social media, and the confusion that reigns in the profession, and it's created this fog, this total undefined fog, where you can't even hold, you can't really hold an intelligent conversation with a colleague because there's just too many variables. There's too many variables. So, so in fact, no one has a clue. And I'm sitting there navigating through life with my compass from psychoneuroimmunology. If you were in that terminal hopeless, helpless situation and an extreme fear situation, you're highly at risk. And unless you get out of it and you catch this virus, you may well succumb not because the virus is more toxic in you than in an asymptomatic carrier, but because your physiology has allowed it to plant its seed. My salvation is my psychoneuroimmunology, my triangles model, which is the model that I put together to make sense of this whole thing. And I believe that I, I don't want to sound smug in any way because I'm not. I just feel that I'm one of the very few that has identifiable landmarks in the sea of confusion. Because the way I'm speaking to you is the way I think and it's the way I behave on a day-to-day -day basis. Trauma, even the perception of trauma, stops us from making logical choices and decisions. And so many people, especially people on the front line, are living in this, this perceived trauma or fear. 
So yeah, I mean, no one's going to put themselves out there and discuss what we're discussing if they are fearful. So what I would like to do for, for the audience who, who are listening, who don't understand what PNI is and NLP, let's break from the, the, the current situation and let's give everybody a really good understanding of how this works, what PNI really is, how we can access this as a tool to enhance our, our quality of life. So, so PNI stands for psychoneuroimmunology, which really is the mind-body connection, specifically mind states, cognitive and emotional function, and how it influences the immune system. But we also know that it's a two-way process. So the chemistry of the brain supporting cognitive and emotional function goes out into circulation where it influences the immune cells which produce their chemistry. And that chemistry, in fact, um, circulates back into the brain and has its influence on the brain. So there's a very, very strong bi-directional connection between mind states and its underpinning chemistry and the immune system. The problem here with this is that, so you start having mind states, you start having chemistry, you start having immune function. It was all really um, essentially unintegrated. I was one of the pioneers of the applications of PNI. I wasn't a pioneer of PNI. The pioneers of PNI were in the States. Their names was, were Cohen, Felton, Ada. These were the, the founders of this connection of mind states and immune function. But I was one of only two of the original pioneers applying the concepts in a clinical environment so as to enhance immunity in those of my patients who had tumors and to suppress chronic inflammation amongst those who had chronic inflammatory problems. Bearing in mind that today we recognize that more than 80% of human conditions, human diseases have a chronic inflammatory foundation. And they include heart disease, strokes, uh, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, the neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and many of the cancers all have a chronic inflammatory foundation. And we know now that chronic inflammation over many years can predispose to cancer formation. So there was a very strong imperative to take all this information, create some kind of a vehicle, a platform to be able to apply it so that the average layperson, not the medical profession and not the paramedicals, but the patients, the lay public needed to understand that this was a very real influence and how it worked and we could flesh it out as far as they can uh, understand it. We can show you exactly how it works because that's based on the research. And so I developed what's called the triangles model, which has worked for 25 years. And I use that for my patients and I use that to train coaches to use that in as a, as an extra modality. And, uh, and by the way, this is basically put up for sale. It's a five module program. It's put up for sale. Uh, off my website um, later on if you'd like to publish it you can it's it's purchased with a secure purchase online a five module program and it's complete it is the complete pni application designed for the lay public and for for that matter for the medical and the paramedical staff so that's really what this application is all about it was to bring it out of the research space bring it out of any theoretical space, make it real and show that it's real and use it uh, both on oneself and if one is a therapist on one's clients or patients and those close to, to, to one. I mean, people are empowered once they understand it and they're aware of all the, 
the influences and the pathways, they're empowered to heal themselves and to heal those close to them. And hopefully it will basically spread from that, that, that point. What's really becoming, standing out for me as we're chatting is, is the madness of crowds, how those in our lives can either suck us into the state of helpless, hopeless, uh, depending on those we, we associate with or those we are stuck with in some cases. And then you mentioned earlier oxytocin. Not only are we seeing with this social, isola- social isolation, is, it's the antithesis of oxytocin. It's the antithesis of rapport. It is exactly what the human brain doesn't want when it needs to heal because we need the support, we need the rapport, we need to feel part of. It's a big part of the healing. Just to to put people in an ICU ward and isolate them and not let them near their, their family is almost like a death sentence in so many cases. It's, it's, it just seems to be coming to the surface, listening to everything you're saying about simply how the brain is wired. We, we are we, we tribal, we are herd animals. In your perspective, when you see a patient who's critically ill, the rapport and the connection with them, would you say that is a key to their healing? And especially when it relates to PNI. Well, there, there's that concept of rapport and rapport is... Um, heavily based on sensitivity and empathy. I mean, you can't have rapport unless you're sensitive and empathic and, and unless you're in touch with your emotions and, you're aw- and you have self-awareness. You know, that, that point of engagement is, from, from the perspective of both individuals, is very much a reflection of who you are. Sadly, the biomedical environment is not very strong on sensitivity and empathy there of course there are i mean a lot of my colleagues are sensitive and, emp- and empathic but in an environment in a clinical hospital environment you know a lot of the empathy is coming most of the empathy is coming from the nursing staff they're the, they're the empaths the other guys are just busy doing what they're trained to do and so we're saying that um, that connection at the end of the day is a ref- and it's with a doctor patient the doctor has to have reached a level of self-awareness and self-awareness of all that they are also requires that we are sensitive to all that we are sensitive to our emotions. And only once we've achieved self-awareness to become, do we become aware of the other. And then with that sensitivity and empathy and with the oxytocin that comes with it, you can establish rapport. If you establish rapport, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Empathy, trust, belief, and awe are all the components of, of that connection, that oxytocin connection. Without it, it's a cold, clinical, predisposing to fear and hopeless, helpless. Sadly, that's what the clinic looks like. And all I can say is thank God for the nursing staff. Thank God for the nursing staff. They bring in that sensitivity and that empathy. And, and I would say that I think today or tomorrow was the day of the nurses. I mean, thank God for the nurses because they're basically compensating for what the, the medical profession don't have for, for whatever reason. And it's that empathy and it's that connectivity which is probably going to be more effective in this current environment than what the doctors are busy trying to do. Just having someone who's hoping for you and on your team or just sensing that is... You know, I've, I've been doing this for 12 years and 
I know, you know, people come to me for, for nutrition courses and they want to lose weight or they got chronic inflammation. They need to um, figure out how to break their addiction to sugar, but it's not the diet that's doing the work. It is the connection to that person and just believing in them that they can do this is more important than the supplement or the diet. It's just going through the motions. It is 100% um, believing in a person genuinely really believe not just lip service it is complete belief in a human being's ability to change that does the work it's not that simple because you've got to you've got to put yourself aside and really be able to give somebody else the credit for doing i mean you can give them the tools but they've got to do the work at the end of the day um so yes and when we talk about nursing staff i just get a picture in my mind of exhausted people and when I think of exhausted people, I think of what you were saying earlier about adrenaline and cortisol and how toxic that is to our immune systems. So although these are the people who are saving lives in a big way, they're so vulnerable because their chemistry is not, not in a healthy place. I think we're going to see a big spike in, in illness and fatality rates in the nursing staff if if we don't find a way of, I mean, there, there's so many studies that confirm that shift workers are the most at risk for, for cancer, breast cancer, for example. Um, and if the writing isn't on the wall, and this isn't going to nudge the medical profession and many other industries into thinking differently, I don't know what it's going to. So let's chat a little bit about sleep and cortisol and circadian rhythms and how that works in the brain because this is a big deal for so many people without getting rest we we stuffed well look i mean it, it's there's an angle and it always seems to be overlooked and the angle is melatonin so we need melatonin uh, it's a critical element and it in itself is an anti-inflammatory and it is conducive to a healthy cycle what stops melatonin production by the pineal is light striking the retina. So if light strikes your retina, it immediately stops melatonin production, which lays you open to those destructive cycles that I, told, I spoke about earlier on. And that is, if you don't have the modulating effect of melatonin, you kickstart the inflammatory mediators. And you then kickstart that whole cycle of um, raised inflammatory mediators and chronic inflammation and all its consequences. And by the way, the adrenaline, the raised adrenaline cycle can also give rise to a hopeless, helpless situation purely on a chemical basis. It's just something that we're aware of. It, so it's, it's, it's not just an um, inflammatory mediator stimulus, the raised adrenaline, but it can also kickstart a hopeless, helpless cycle, chemically, not just psychologically. The other thing is that there's a lot of work done in the literature, the, the psych and the PNI literature. I just can't keep on saying psych and neuroimmunology. It's long past where I was impressing people at cocktail parties by saying psych and neuroimmunology. So um, in PNI, in, in some of the original research done by a brilliant researcher, her name is Janice Keegold Glazer in the States. I mean, she is almost the, the doyen of current psychoneuroimmunology PNI research. Some of her original work showed that one of the most lethal state, uh, states to be in, in terms of the chemistry that we spoke about, 
is to be in a chronic caregiver state. The chronic caregiver state has got high risks. It is associated with a lot of the chemistry, the destructive chemistry that we spoke about. And that's another extra component, an extra negative component, sadly, which is also going to affect the nursing staff who are doing the nursing, basically. They're in the caregiver state. And um, sadly, that's most, most unfortunate because their hours, the intensity of their work, far outstrips their vocational calling. That gets left behind. And uh, I remember there was a very interesting situation when I was a registrar in the States, they would call it a resident, but I was a surgical resident at uh, one of the busiest hospitals in the world, Baragwanath in South Africa, one of the busiest hospitals. Every weekend night was a third world war. And one of the new interns in our unit, we had big units, we had units of about eight or nine interns and four or five residents, was a nun. And obviously this was a calling. She was doing medicine as a nun, and she was always going to be part of the church. And I monitored her progress, and the stress of that horrendous frontline clinical trauma wore her down after a month, and I saw her break apart. And I thought to myself, wow, if, if anyone had a calling, she had the calling. But when things get this stressed, when, this, when things get this traumatic, those even with the greatest calling get traumatized. And that for me was always the, the barometer. That was the benchmark. With that kind of calling, but in the face of that kind of clinical stress, it will break it apart. No matter who you are, that calling will pull you apart. Is there any kind of care for the carer program available perhaps not here, but anywhere in the world that you may have heard of, where, where staff, nursing staff, nursing sisters are, are given tools to self-manage and to balance their stress. It doesn't seem to, well, not that I've ever heard, really exist. And it, it seems almost bizarre that they are tasked with looking after people's lives, but they're not given the tools to look after their own. Sadly, I don't know of any programs uh, specifically for nursing staff. I know that social workers, build it into if they're involved with a uh, say they're involved with an NGO or they're involved with a, a bigger team group um, more academic perhaps they build in the care of the carer but I personally am not aware of that kind of support built into the working day week or month of the nursing staff I'm not aware of it no I'm not aware that anything like that really exists to the extent where we can enhance people's quality of life. It's, it's horrific. Just to step back into the sleep situation, how do sleeping pills actually work on a brain level? And what is your opinion? You know, you don't have to quote a, um, a brand name, but just in your experience as a doctor, is there a place for sleeping pills? Is it going to get the job done? So sleeping tablets, the average sleeping tablet that people use at the moment is not really a hypnotic. In other words, it doesn't put you to sleep like an anesthetic. What it does is it stimulates the, it, it stimulates the receptors called GABA, GABA aminobutyric acid receptors, which when triggered are suppressing of, of neuron function. In other words, they are uh, inhibitory neurotransmitters. So what they do is they slowly quieten the noise. 
And as they slowly quieten the noise, they allow the deeper brainstem uh, centers to bring on the sleep. Most of the problems with falling asleep is due to either anxiety or a very overactive neuronal noise. And so the average sleeping tablet, and most of them work through GABA receptors, uh, are, immu- are neuroinhibitors quietening down the noise and allowing sleep to take place. Now, there's quite a few people who take the medication not because they really are insomniacs as such, but because they have, and they're not, anxi- they're not anxious individuals either, but they need something to stop their minds from thinking. They're just flowing with ideas and it doesn't stop. And so in those particular cases, I would say, take a half a tab maybe every second night. There, there is obviously a potential addiction to this, but if you keep it at a, at a low level and it's specifically for that reason, it has a part to play. But those who have an anxiety problem and are taking biggish doses, well, therein obviously lies a problem because that is definitely going to be an addiction. And maybe they haven't explored adequately alternatives in terms of meditation and other um, interventions. Uh, and I would even say that also for those who really have a very overactive mind situation, should also look at that possibility to try and quieten the mind down because that's really all you really need is to quieten down the noise to allow the normal sleep mechanisms to take effect. So would it be then that it's cortisol, which is our internal alarm clock that's waking people up at 2 a.m. so they fall asleep okay because they've figured out how to quiet the mind, but the cortisol is what's turning on the alarm clock too soon, too early in the morning? That I can't comment on. I I don't know enough about that angle. I couldn't comment. I haven't studied that at all. We just know that you've got raised cortisol levels in the morning and you've got diminished levels in the course of the day as part of the cortisol diurnal rhythm. I mean, for many years, I loved taking a half a sleeping pill every night. And then one day I got pregnant and I couldn't. And I just resigned myself to the fact that I couldn't take these things for a couple of months. You know what? It made no difference. I could fall asleep, but it was just a state of mind. I I knew that I couldn't, so I didn't, but I fell asleep anyway. And it made me think, to what extent are we cheating a little bit and not doing the work and causing a bit of a problem downstream? And yeah, it's... I'm always on the fence because the adrenaline that comes with not sleeping and all those other inflammatory reactions when we're not well rested versus taking a pill occasionally is it's a really tough, tough call. I wish there was an, an easier answer to this. It's one of those big question marks that I think perhaps with with, with PNI, especially doing the training that like the the course you're offering is to give us a deeper understanding of of what's going on, maybe ask new questions again. Did you say that the course is available to non-practitioners as well? Absolutely. So so what we did was, um, obviously I couldn't really cater for all the workshops that were required. And I do retreats. I do Buddhist retreats as well. Um, I do twice a year. And these are three-day retreats, three-day workshops. Uh, And I did one literally two weeks before the COVID lockdown. That was the last one I did. And then I decided, well, this was a great opportunity to say, well, hang on a bit. I can't be everywhere at once. Most of those retreats are lay, lay public. 
it's it's directed more at the lay public and obviously there's a smattering of medical guys and lots of psychologists and and uh, paramedical and so this was a great opportunity to just take the entire three days converted into five modules of a comprehensive workshop with workbook the online diagnostic which assesses you in the in the context of the pni plus the slides put it all together in one package secure purchase online downloads see the five modules and then in time make available live webinars just to take discussions on with with those who have um, done the five modules and worked their way through it so yeah it's available it's online um it's all done through my website www.neuronostic.com n-e-u-r-o-n-o-s-t-i-c.com and you just register yourself with a password and you create an account and then you purchase the comprehensive five modules it's as simple as that i would highly recommend even a fundamental um, understanding of how how the mind body works for anybody who's who's battling or not even battling with disease or just concerned for somebody else it is so empowering to understand the connection and and what we can do with with what we've been given so um, I will definitely put the links um, to your to your website and everything about the program into the show notes, and we'll we'll put it out there. Um, so yes, what advice could you give somebody who is living in fear? It's a it's a it's a strange question. I don't expect a definitive answer, but if I'm sitting here now, not knowing what the future is bringing, and I'm terrified of getting sick, and what is the first piece of advice you could give somebody who's paralyzed by the situation so i would say just stop thinking take a few breaths and remind yourself that you're breathing and you're well and that you have all the requirements for fighting a bug if just left to its own devices that the vast majority of the world in regard to the fear of this condition have recovered fully without any consequences because the immune system knows what it has to do and you have one of those two, and you yourself have survived many infections in the past, which is a further endorsement of the fact that you have a very healthy functional immune system. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this whole thing is beyond our control. We can't control this global phenomenon, but what you can do is tend your own acre. And so what you need to do is apply what we've got in the middle, in, in the very inner, in, in the foundation of our program of the, are the five core elements. So having satisfied yourself that you're alive and well and you have all the systems ready to function and they will function, then I would say apply the five core elements. And the five core elements are number one, meaning, purpose, and the curiosity that goes with it. You must go through a personal mission statement, a checklist, just find out the things that provide meaning and purpose for you. So it's meaning and purpose and the curiosity that drives it. The second thing is self-esteem, self-efficacy. You know you are, you're able to do things. You've done it in the past. Um, you are capable. You're a capable person. You can do things. So you're able to engage and do things. And number three, gratification. Remind yourself of all the things that have provided gratification, whatever it may be, whether it be pure sensory gratification, task engagement gratification, task mask 
Did we get gratification? All the things that are giving you personal gratification, remind yourself of them and maybe bring them back into operation. The third is achievement, um, sought after achievement, anticipated achievement. And finally, a very big one, value contribution. Value contribution is making things better than they were before you engaged with them. So it's engaging with yourself and making yourself better than you were before you engaged with yourself and making your environment better than it was. And with that obviously comes sensitivity and empathy. And these five core elements in various forms, dig out all the old stuff that provided gratification and meaning and purpose, establish, you know, we're blessed today with this technology that if we were interested in something, we just have to call up a YouTube and watch it. And that will then send us into another YouTube and then we'll start doing things. And so we have got so many things that can kickstart meaning, purpose, and curiosity. And from there, everything flows. And so I would say those are the guiding lights. And if all else fails, just eat lots of chocolate. <laughs> yes, you at least make some serotonin from the chocolate anyway, and that's okay. Ian, it's been, it's always so wonderful to, to chat to you and I'm sure we could, we could talk for hours. And in the meantime, I'm going to encourage everybody to go and check out your website, sign on to the course and start learning about how they can control some aspects of their life, if nothing else, at least um, your state. So your immune system can be robust, if nothing else. Thanks. Thanks very much. It was a great chat and, and hopefully we can spread a healthy word or two. Yes, have a great evening and thanks again.